I've never had the strongest arm or upper body strength, but my legs, I got legs for days. <laughs> Mesdames et messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. fans of Shook Liston and welcome to another episode of Keep the Flame Alive, the podcast for fans of the Olympics and Paralympics. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello, how are you? I'm feeling like throwing some things. <laughs> nice I look. feel like throwing heavy objects. Little allusion to today's interview. How far can you throw them? It depends on how mad I am. <laughs> I'll have to send a message to your daughter to be nice. <laughs> We've been talking to people and they've given me some tips. <laughs> so, yes, we are sh talking a shot put today with gold medalist Michelle Carter. But uh, before we get to our interview, Tokyo is coming up pretty quickly. <laughs> it's 50 days away. It's scary close. Oh. Since it's getting so close, we're really going to focus the show on prepping for Tokyo. So we're going to pause some of our segments like the Atlanta moments and pretty much all of the other games. Hopefully they'll be smart and not make any big announcements before Tokyo. But uh, you'll still catch news on Twitter. I know the IOC announced something today. Did you see this about uh, their new hospitality program that they're going to have for Paris and beyond? They just tried to slip this in when we weren't paying attention. Yeah, but I still I don't understand it because I asked one uh, another journalist on Twitter, like, does this mean that they're getting rid of the authorized ticket resellers? And he said, no, this looks like it's just for hospitality packages. But that's something that the ATRs like here in the U.S. It's Coastboard. That's part of their deal. So, uh, yeah, the IOC is, has a partnership with the hospitality provider, but they're going to do it globally. So it's not like nine different authorized ticket resellers with their own packages. It's going to be one place does it globally. So that's a little interesting development that they've slid in there. But it, that'll start with with uh, Paris 2024. We'll find out more news on that and re uh, report on it in future episodes. But that said, we probably won't talk about IOC news until the IOC session that takes place right before uh, Tokyo. We probably won't talk about much International Paralympic Committee news unless they do something really big before Tokyo. But it's going to be all games while we, while we prep and while trials are going on and uh, teams are being named while we put together what we're going to do during Tokyo. So much kit coming out. Oh, I know. I know. It's so exciting. So every day on Instagram, and I'm sure on Twitter as well, teams are getting named and athletes are getting uh, getting their ticket to Tokyo. And kit is coming out for all the different teams. And I look at them and I say, how are, th how are there this many countries? <laughs> it's like it makes you realize when you're signed up to all the different country Olympic committees and mm -hmm. all the mess because usually they say almost nothing. Right. 
you know, how often does the Bahamian Olympic Committee come out with something? Well, they came out with like three announcements this week. <laughs> and I'm like, Bahamas, calm down. I, I, I can't keep up. But it's exciting. It's, it's really great. exciting. So everybody's getting in the mood. Athletes are starting to get to Tokyo. We'll talk about that a little bit later. And for all intents and purposes, it is happening, even though there's still calls to cancel it. So we shall see. We've 50 more days. But uh, before we get to this week's interview, we would like to thank our Patreon patrons who support us financially, which is super helpful, especially in our preparations for Beijing. Yeah, the Tokyo Games are next month, and we are prepping for those, but we're also doing a lot of logistical things to prepare for our on-the-ground coverage in Beijing. You can support us today at patreon.com slash flamealivepod. And if you don't want to do a Patreon ongoing donation, save your pennies, because we'll have a Kickstarter during Tokyo. All right, on to today's interview. We are talking with Michelle Carter. She is a three-time Olympic shot putter who competes for the United States. At Beijing 2008, she placed 13th. At London 2012, she placed fourth after some doping tests negated the results of a couple of her competitors. So she's, as of today, she's still fourth. You never know, she could get bumped up the way 2012 has gone. At Rio 2016, she won the gold medal, beating the two-time defending gold medalist Valerie Adams from Team New Zealand, which was a huge deal because nobody had won three golds in a row, and that's what Valerie was going for. But Michelle outthrew her that day. She is coached by her father, LA 1984 silver medalist Michael Carter. So we talked with Michelle about shot put techniques, uh, working with her father, her strategies for managing her ADHD and dyslexia and her Olympic experiences and how looking her best helps her achieve her best. Take a listen. Let's start with, with shot put. Okay. Because as just the casual viewer, I've never been a track and fielder, go into circle, have big rock like thing, throw far. That's yeah. kind of the, you know, and whoever throws it the farthest is the winner. Mm hmm. But there's obviously a lot more to it. So where do you start when you say what that lot more to it is? Where do we start asking those questions? Yes. So that lot more is actually trying to figure out how can I create the most power within the circle and stay in the circle and still throw the shot put as far as I can. Because you have to think about it. You have a seven-foot circle. And you have to use whatever you can within this circle to create power to actually launch the shot. So I feel like that's that that would be that thing that you have to think about because just throwing it as far as you can is one thing, but um, like just regular throwing it. Plus, you shouldn't throw a shot put like a baseball. You tear your shoulder up. But um, to really create that power, there's like this technique that goes into it. Like you start building up power from your bottom from the bottom half of your body all the way up. So creating that power within, let's say a half a second, if not, maybe a quarter of a second. That's how fast that needs to happen. Okay, so what parts of your body, I mean, you're using all parts of your body, but what parts of your body specifically are you using in what way to generate that kind of power? Number one, your legs. Your legs generate the most power between your legs and you get to your like glutes, hips, and core are like the main powerhouse of the throws and I always say your arms just finish it off 
I've never had the strongest arm or upper body strength, but my legs, I got legs for days. <laughs> I, I was watching some like slow-mo versions of your, your Rio competition yeah. and you start bat. What is that? Is it a glide that they call yes. that? Yes. Okay. So you, you start balancing on your, are you right-handed? You're right-handed. Okay. So yeah. you start balancing on your left leg or your right leg. Right leg. Mm -hmm. And you kind of shuffle with your left and keep everything yeah. in, and, and all just stay on one foot and then kind of throw and, and transfer weight over to the other foot. Correct. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So I start out the back of the ring. I'm on my right leg. And then we, um, I come out to what we call a T position where my right leg is down, but then my head, I'm bending over, but my left leg is going straight back. Like it's going up. So I almost look like a T. And so um, then when I get from the T position, I crouch down almost like a little ball in the back of the ring. And then I am still on my right leg. And then from there, I will kind of just shift my weight backwards, push off my right leg and extend my left leg towards the front of the ring in the direction I'm throwing. So then I go from one foot to two feet. That sounded weird, but I think I said it right. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was like this little hop back, but instead of like hopping where you kind of hop like a rabbit, where you kind of make this little arc in the air, it's like, I want to stay as low to the ground as possible. I don't want to <laughs> hop. Yeah that contains all that power so that you have that power to throw and you're not putting the power into the jump. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Cause like the quickest way to a point is in a straight line. And that also means like going up and down. So we're trying to keep that line as straight and as smooth as possible. Okay. Okay. Now throwers tend to be pretty tall. So what about height improves distance? I would say height just kind of gives you an advantage because you have more room to push because if your arms or you're taller, you have more time to push because you have more of a lever to push from. But throwers come in all shapes and sizes. I'm not the tallest, but I'm not the shortest. <laughs> well, everyone looks tall to me. I'm five feet tall. Oh, so well, well <laughs> man, you know, just, there, there's some throwers out there like at five, two, five, three. There's some. <laughs> put that in your head, Allison. <laughs> okay, so what, why shot put versus hammer versus discus? Well, well, in high school in Texas, in the state of Texas, we do not have hammer. Um, so in high school, we don't do hammer and javelin because of safety reasons, and everyone can afford to house that. So, um, I did shot put and discus all through high school, all through college. And then I made the mistake thinking I only had to specialize in one event once I went pro. So that's one thing I will go back and redo. I should have kept doing both because I was good at both. Uh, but since um, I was better in shot, I felt like I had to only focus on one and not do two. That's interesting because there are runners that do multiple events. Mm -hmm. But a lot of times you don't see that in the throwing. Yeah. Is, is that the reason that people think that they can't do both? Or No, uh, to be honest, a lot of throwers are really only good at one. You know, one is always way better than the other for a lot of throwers. And there are some throwers who can be good at two. 
But I do think maybe over time, and maybe we haven't seen too many people do it, there's probably not enough information or just because it hasn't been done yet where someone's able to do two events at a high level that people don't think is an option. Okay. What are the differences in the technique for the two that you were doing? Uh, for shot, like the two techniques in shot? No, or when you were saying shot, shot versus and, and hammer and yeah, and discuss. Oh, so I've never thrown a hammer. I've okay. never thrown the hammer because when I went to college, I went to the University of Texas, Hook'em Horns, and I only, um, I was the only thrower on a team full of sprinters. So therefore, my dad was like, stick to what you know. You don't have a coach for that, so you're not going to learn a hammer. Uh, so I stuck with shot putting this. So with shot, for me, there's there are two techniques in shot. There's a spin and the glide. I'm a glider where I just keep everything in one line, and there's a spinner. So the spinner actually has the same technique or a similar technique to the discus. It's the same motion. It's just that in the discus, your arm is out and you're keeping everything wide. But in shot, you keep everything closed. Okay. Because you have the shot on your neck. <laughs> okay. So you said if you just hurled the shot with your arm, you'd blow out your shoulder. What other things can go very wrong? Oh my gosh. <laughs> a lot of things. <laughs> I, I've seen a little bit of some of everything because sometimes people forget like you're throwing it and the shot is heavy. People drop it on their feet in the middle of the throw. Sometimes they may try to throw it too far up and they're like, okay, where did it go? <laughs> like it's, it's a lot, it's a lot of different things. People sometimes there's a, so in the ring, you have the circle and at the front of the circle, there's a toe board. And people trip over that toe board all the time. Like that's like probably one of the most dangerous parts of the throw is trying to stay in that ring, but not trip over the toe board. So if you fall out of the circle, that's a foul it's a in foul. any way. Yes. If you, if you step out the circle, even, even if you touch the top of the toe board, like anything that's within that circumference of the inside of the circle is a foul. When you're competing, if you step into the circle, can you step out or with permission with, with permission. permission? Yeah. You could, uh, if you step in and something's not feeling right, you need to do something. You can ask the officials, can I step out? And they can give you the permission without giving you a foul, but you do have a time that you have to throw. So you can do whatever you need to do within a minute. As long as you have started the throw within the minute they have called your name, it's a legal throw. How many fouls do you get before you're disqualified or well, it depends it on waste of a throw i think fouls are a waste of a throw how my dad coaches me we don't foul you don't foul um like you just never know what throw is going to be your best throw so we practice to not foul but so going into a competition sometimes you may only get three throws and then from those three throws you make it to the next round to get three more throws but sometimes you go to some track means you already just automatically get six throws so the idea for me and how I think about it is to make sure every throw counts. You talked about throwing the shot too high. Do you have to work on the angle of your elbow and your hand and how that is to make sure that's the trajectory that you go with the shot versus like if, if your elbow is too close to your body, does that mean you could potentially throw the shot too high up and not further out? Yeah. Or Okay. So normally um, when people drop their elbow, they tend to throw the shot like a baseball. So when you throw a ball, the first thing you do, you drop your elbow. 
So for a shot, you want to keep your elbow up because the angle isn't about where your arm is. The angle is like how far back your body, upper body is. So my upper body is back over my right leg, like how I want it. And so when I get to the top, I'm like head up, chest up. But if my hips are tucked underneath me, and then I get a chance to throw down. So the angle really depends on where your um, torso is facing. Is one half of your body di built differently than the other because of how you've trained? No, that's genetics. <laughs> I had thighs since the day I was born. They just won't go away. <laughs> well, I, I'm not even saying top to bottom. I'm saying left to right. Like, is your left leg bigger than your right leg? Oh, your so weird thing is my right thigh is bigger than my left thigh, but my left calf is bigger than my right calf. My right, like, like bicep, tricep is bigger than my left, but my forearm I'm about my shoulder, like in this shoulder area, especially on the back side, it's more developed than my right side because on my right side, I'm pushing and then on my left side, I'm blocking. What are you blocking? So I'm blocking to stop my energy from, um, so I want to throw forward. So I block to stop my body from keep going in this direction so I could push more forward. So it's like what's in motion stays in motion. So if I just slings the sling my left arm around, my body's gonna keep going because that motion is going. Okay. That also probably answers another question I had is when you are the the actual throw, because your body is in motion, your throw could go straight, it could go diagonally, but mm -hmm. you want it to go as straight as possible because that's further. Am I correct in thinking that? Talk about coming from when I started. No, no. When, yeah, when you're when you're doing the actual throw, and you're you're turning around because there's all that motion, and you could just keep turning and turning, but you kind of have to figure out when to throw to make yeah go straighter because yes. if it goes at an angle, it doesn't go as far. Correct? Yeah, yeah. No, okay. well, let me, I won't say that because all of my furthest throws are a little more to the left <laughs> than they are to the right. Okay. So as long as it's within the sector line, so those mm -hmm. lines that you see that kind of looks like a little um, angle, it's, um, as long as the throw falls in between there, you're good. Okay. Because that's another, we call that a sector file if it goes outside those lines. Right, but you don't want it to go sideways, obviously. No. Because so, that would... <laughs> So if I'm throwing this, if I need to throw this way and it's going this way, we have a major problem. <laughs> also, the people who are standing there have a major problem. Oh, man. Actually, me, I just went to, it rained and the ring was so slippery. Um, it was throwing off everybody balance. So shots were literally flying all over the place. And you had to keep your head on a swivel because you didn't know what was coming your way. I saw a little bit of that and they kept trying to dry the ring out and it just looked like it was not working. It was, it was not working. It was really, it was really bad. Uh, I have. The first time I hit somebody, it wasn't even with the shot. It was with the discus. I was at practice and it was like my first year ever throwing. And then we were at summer track and this young girl was with me. She was older than me, but we were practicing together. And we were at a place where we didn't have like a real ring. We didn't have the nets and stuff. So it was like a piece of concrete and we're just throwing off the piece of concrete. And so I told her, I'm like, well, you don't want to stand right there because if I release it too early, you're going to get hit. And she was like, well, you never release the discus early. I'm like, well, I think you should move because just in case I'm not perfect. I just started throwing. And she was like, come on, Michelle, like, you always do this. And then as soon, as soon as she said that, I threw, that discus flew out my hand early and it hit her in the face and her jaw. 
All I know is I threw and I heard it hit her face and she dropped and hit the ground. And then like, there was like a five second pause. And the next thing you know, she was screaming like bloody murder. I was like, I just killed this girl. She's going to have to go to the hospital. I'm going to be in so much trouble because I know I shouldn't have thrown, but I told her to move. But uh, she, she, she was okay. She was just black and blue and swollen for a little while. She made it. <laughs> How, after you throw, how does the shot get back to you? Because I do remember at Rio, they had those little cars that came back, but I don't yeah, know. Yeah, so for shot put, they didn't have cars for us. That's discus and javelin where they get fancy because that's a lot of walking in that event. But they have like this little rail that starts off high and it goes all the way down to the ground. So then they just roll your shot back down the little, the little rail. Do you have a shot put that you use in competition? I do. I okay. do. I have my competition shot and then I have my practice shots. Can you take that on the plane with you as a carry-on? No, not anymore. I used to. And actually, some people still couldn't carry on discuses uh, on carry-ons. But when um, after a couple of major events that happened in the U.S., they look at my bag. They're like, what, you have a cannon? <laughs> this is a cannonball? I'm like, no, it's not a chocolate. <laughs> yeah, I don't think you can have this on the plane. I'm like, all right, well. There you go. So how does it travel? In my um, check-in bag, I have a nice little towel. I call my shopper. Her name is Divala. And Divala has a little towel that has Shot Diva on there because when she gets to the track meet, I have to check her in. And so I, I say that that's taking her to daycare where she gets to go play with all the other shot puts. So um, that's what we do. So I put her in my check-in bag and she's like tucked away in her little towel. What is the difference between Divala and your practice shot put? Anything or just she's more well cared for? Well, she's, um, she just don't get used as much. She's only pulled out for special occasions because she has to maintain her weight. She has to not get too beat up because she has to go to the meet looking and making sure she meets the right qualifications in order for me to use her. Can you do anything aesthetically to the shot put or do they pretty much have to be plain? You can. It doesn't always work out the best <laughs> because texture is important. And if you get the wrong texture, you're going to have a hard time trying to throw it. Cause if you know, it's hot, you sweat and that's a whole nother ball game. <laughs> How much does your practice shot, does it, does it lose weight from getting thrown around too much? It can, it can. Cause um, where I throw for practice, I throw into a, a lot of lava rocks. So over time it gets scratched and dented. And I think like over time, like the little like part particles will start coming off of it. And so if I get to the track beat and I'm supposed to throw a four kilo shot and then I get there and it's 3.9999999, I cannot use it. All, all the regulations are so, so fascinating because everything is so precise. Yeah. And you just don't think about that. So I, I want to ask you about shoes. Okay. In terms of how they differ from, say, a sprinter shoes or a regular street sneaker. Mm -hmm. So for throwing shoes, the bottoms are a little smoother. So, okay, let me say this. Throwing shoes have advanced over the years because either there was like one throwing shoe, you had to throw shot and disc in the shoe. And then it became, okay, there's a shot put shoe and now there's a discus shoe. Uh, because a discus shoe uh, or what they'll call a spinner shoe because those who spin and shot will also use this shoe where the rubber is a little slicker 
it is a little harder. So you can rotate a little easier. But in the, in the traditional throwing shoe, there is still some texture, uh, a little more texture on there for like, I would say like a regular throwing shoe, which is a glider shoe. Um, so they have like a, uh, a shopper shoe, a discus shoe, and then they have like a, um, a hybrid shoe where it's a, a mix in between the two. Do you ever change shoes for the weather? Sometimes, yes. Uh, it depends. A lot of times I don't have to worry about it because we tend to go to places that um, it may not rain too much, but they normally have the right type of concrete so that if it does rain, we still have uh, enough texture on the ground where we're not slipping and sliding all over the place. Have you shown up to meets where they have not had good concrete? Yes, the meat I just left was <laughs> really wait, and that's it. That was at Oregon, that whole new, brand new stadium. Yeah, yeah, oh, it was it was rough. Yeah, I told him I'm like, listen, and it, and it normally always rains during the Olympic trials, and so um, I, I I was make because not so many people glide anymore, <laughs> so that everybody's like a sprint, sprinter. All the young girls are sprinting, not sprinting, um, spinning. And so I'm like, whoever made this ring made this ring for a spinner. But if it rains, it's over because it's really smooth. And so and that's something that's fixable. They could definitely fix that and rough up the texture of the ring so that when we come back for the Olympic trials, is it'll be easier for everyone to throw. Why is the there a tendency toward spinning with the younger generation or younger age group? Careful um, how you say that, Jill. I know. I don't. I, you know. I'm. We're ageless. I know listen. you are. <laughs> well, I the um one of the um announcers at one of the track meets had to remind me that I'm 13 years older than the next oldest person in my field. Oh, I was like, lot, oh, dude. thank you. Like, I didn't think I was that much older. Then I you go around. To, like, how old are you again? Valerie Adams, <laughs> some more, and then the two of you can just beat the. Mm, like listen we like we're the oldest in the group now it's like we are the old heads but um your question was again why are spinners oh yeah 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 (sighs) so there's always a war which one's better the shot the glide or the spin i say with the spin you can get away with um not having your technique as clean because of momentum Versus in the glide, you will have to have your technique on point to really throw far. If I had to pick between the two, of course, I'm going to still go with the glide because when you get the glide technique down, it's going to work for you every single time. But I think because the popularity of the event, especially with the men's throw throwers, they uh, tend to spin. But when you look on the women's side, uh, especially coming from the European women, the top four or five of us are gliders. I'm a glider. Valerie's a glider. Christina Swanis for Germany's a glider. Gong from China's a glider. And there's a, there's a few other gliders. And the only people who really spin is all the other Americans. And there's a one from Hungary. Uh, Anita, Anita uh, Martin from Hungary. She's a spinner. So it sounds almost like it, it, does it come in and out of fashion? 
like the two-handed backhand in tennis like for a while yeah. everybody did the two-handed and now everyone's going back to the one-handed yeah i think so because when you first learn how to throw you teach the, the glide because that's the basic it's the fundamental it's easier to catch the fundamentals and then when people are like well okay let's try this because this is what i've seen so-and-so do and they're throwing far so let's try this to see if you throw far but then i see this a lot when i go to these high school meets these kids are just throwing and spinning out of control that lets me know that they're using the momentum to throw far and not really focusing on the technique. But when you can really focus on the technique, and there are some spinners that have great technique and um, are throwing very far, but if you combine the two, that's when you win. But a lot of people, I feel like they kind of cheat the system by going to the spin because the catching the technique in the glide may have been a little too hard for them. Do you think that has to do with not having a lot of great throwing coaches at high school level? Oh my gosh. Now you're hitting on a whole nother topic. <laughs> oh Lord. <laughs> Listen. Time. You said, made the mistake Listen. of being, I've got time. <laughs> Listen. Um, I definitely do. These coaches are trying to teach things they don't understand and they haven't taken the time to even read to understand. Because... These kids can get hurt, and we've seen kids get hurt at meets and just doing whatever the coach says to do because they were like, oh, I think I saw so-and-so do this, but they don't even understand why that person does that. Like if you're watching a Ryan Krauser or um, a Joe Kovacs, they have their spouse, especially when Adam Nelson came around. His little throwing style was a little funky and different from everybody else's, but he used and found what works for him. And so you see somebody else do it, but if you don't understand why they're doing it, then you're going to hurt the next person because that wasn't really made for them to do. And so I really do wish that a lot of coaches will take the time to learn and, and accept help because <laughs> I've gone to these meets and I'm like, listen, I don't have to coach your athlete. I can sit here and watch your athlete and I can tell you what to say and show you what to look for so that you can be a better coach. And they think that I just want credit for the athletes. Like, I don't care about that. Like, I just I just need kids to be able to throw far and um, go to school for free. And if they want to continue their, you know, um, their career, they can, but they have at least a solid uh, background on it from jump. And these coaches, nine times out of 10, don't care. And then we're in the state of Texas where football is a religion. So these are just football coaches doing something else is the pastime. That's rough. I mean, because basics and fundamentals are so important. Yes. And 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 I, we have a soft spot for the smaller sports or the smaller events. Mm -hmm. and it, it's hard when you're just kind of pushed off to the side and like, here, go throw. And maybe I'll yeah. get to you today. Yeah, yeah. A lot of these kids are out there throwing on their own. They're out there by themselves and the coaches don't care. They're like, well, we just need somebody out there. Try to get us some points if you can. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> I think it's interesting that, you know, we spoke to Deanna Price, yeah. who married her coach. And now we're speaking to you, who had a little bit of an advantage with your coach. So I think it's interesting that kind of the this, you know, kind of the two best throwers in the United States have this connection to their coaches. Mm-hmm. And I don't think there's that's an accident because getting good coaching is hard in these sports. It is. It is. It is. Because at the end of the day, for me and what my dad believes as well, the fundamentals never change. And some people always want to try to find something that, 
oh, maybe people didn't think about this, but I'm like, but it goes against the fundamentals. Like if you still want to be do advanced math, like adding, subtracting and dividing and multiplying doesn't change. <laughs> right. But some people want to be like, well, you don't have to add, you can still do math. And then you wonder why it, it's all jacked up. And then people are like, oh, well, you could throw, but you don't have to really do this part. But that's part of the fundamental. Like, that's the basic. If you do these things, it's guaranteed to work. But then people want to, like, do different things. And I'm like, okay, like, keep it simple is my thing. Keep it simple. That's all you have to do. We made Michelle Carter mad. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. Listen, throwing is so easy, but people make it hard. It's the people, not the throwing. <laughs> I have a daughter with ADHD. Yeah. So I, I, you did something earlier where you couldn't remember a question, and it felt very um, like my house. Yeah. And... You were diagnosed very young with both disorders, which is unusual in it, girls. It, yeah, yeah. Your girl was hyper as a child. Like, <laughs> I was all over the place. But I was super smart. So uh, I guess I, when I was in one of the schools, I guess the teacher kind of noticed a couple of things. And I'm like, let's get her tested just to double check so we can just see where she's at. And so, of course, my IQ levels came back, like, record high. But then they're like, you're actually a genius, but... <laughs> you know, like that butt part. This how you you uh, you focus and maybe process things sometimes is different and it may be hard. So I actually went back to my parents' house not too long ago, and I asked my mom, like, "Do you have my original paperwork? Like, I want to see what I was all diagnosed with and what they said uh, was the issue." So uh, I found out that I was diagnosed with ADHD and dyslexia, but also I had a speech uh, a speech issue. And I like a, and a reading and writing issue. So I didn't always comprehend what I just read. I can read it, but I didn't always comprehend it. And then my, my you know, words would come out all kinds of ways. And I don't know what happened. And actually, I had a hearing. I have a hearing issue. So I can hear you, but I'm not sure exactly what you just said. Like, I don't know what you just said. And so a lot of times when I'm in certain places and certain surroundings, I have to really try to zone in and focus because sometimes I'm like, that couldn't be what I heard or what I heard. I'm like, I don't even think they were speaking English, but I knew they were. And so, so going back and rereading the paperwork, I was like, okay, now I know I wasn't tripping because I didn't know everything that I was diagnosed with at the time. That sounds like auditory processing disorder. What they yeah. call now auditory processing disorder. Yeah, it was something the, different on the paper. <laughs> yeah, because they didn't use that term back then. But you hear the words. It's not a hearing issue. It's your brain translating the words, which yeah. is a... And then you mix ADHD where you can't focus that well. <laughs> like, you you kind of had an alphabet soup there that could have gone a very different way. So what interventions did you get as a kid? that made it not go south? So I, I remember about third grade, I started going to tutoring four days a week for an hour. There was a little lady, I love her to death still. Her name was Mrs. Durden. And she was just really spend time with me going over things. My mama said I gave her the blues because on the days I didn't want to work, I'm not going to work. I'm very strong-willed. She was like, if Michelle came here, didn't want to do it. I'm sitting there like, I'm not doing this today. I don't feel like it. And, and she, I'll have the lady, uh, I'll have her crying because um, I'm just 
being stubborn. But that was the main thing I remember doing. And I only did that from third grade to sixth grade. But what I really um, say that helped me a lot was my mom and that positive reinforcement. So my mom never came to me and was like, well, this is what's wrong with you. And this is why you can't do this. My mama always approached it as if, you know what, Michelle, you think differently. Doesn't mean you can't. You're just going to do it different than most people. And that's okay. But as long as you want to do it, I want you to know that you can do it. And so with that, my mom will like sit down with me and be like, hey, you got 30 minutes. We're going to try to focus our hardest and see how much you can get done within 30 minutes. And that was like these little tests that I'll have to like work on monitoring myself on, okay, I'm focusing. I got distracted. Oh, I got 20 minutes. Let me hurry up and get this done. And so it was like this practice of kind of catching when I'm not focusing and how to refocus. Um, I had to write everything down. If I don't write it down, it didn't happen. You never said it. I don't know what you're talking about. And so I have a planner that I have to keep with me or, or a notebook at all times. But then also just knowing um, I can't drink caffeine. I can't do coffee. I'm not going to sleep. And then I'll, whatever hyper I already am is going to be like time 10 after that. So I can't do that. And I can't do sugar, um, especially when I need to really focus and I have a lot of going on because that throws off whatever focus I might have. I'm, I'm not going to be able to do it. So just learning these things about myself and how I operate and acknowledging, oh, okay, this is what's going on. Let me figure out how to get myself back on track. And having that uh, reinforcement really is what helped me because I didn't take medication growing up. And they, I remember I got retested coming out of high school into college. They told me there's no way she's going to make it through college without um, medication. And your girl did. I have a minor and a, uh, I have a major and a minor. So I have like a good, a degree and a half. And um, I only failed one class and I had to retake it. And everything else, I just really learned how I operate and set up boundaries that helped me succeed. So how did sports play into managing all of this when you were a kid? Was it a release? Was it an escape? Was it just someplace to put the energy? For me, I never looked at sport that way. I just did it because that's what I wanted to do and I enjoyed it. So I don't know if it really helped me in that sense. I just knew that, okay, after school I have practice and then on the weekends I have a track beat and this is what I do every day and this is what I have to get prepared for. This is what time I have to get ready. But uh, but, but reading and researching, I think it does because now um, it's funny because I just did an interview today about ADHD, and I think uh, there's studies saying that a lot of athletes have ADHD, like a lot of high-level athletes. And I think it's the reason why, because we think and see things differently. So we're able to kind of internalize different thoughts to get a different result. Could we see how to do this a little different than the next person does? So... I can process my technique differently that in ways that people are like, I never thought about that. I didn't see that. How did you come up with that? How did you think like, but I can do that. Cause that's like my superpower. My ADHD doesn't hinders me. It actually gives me another outlook. I can see things a little different. And if that's how I see it and it makes sense to me, then that's what I'm going to do. And so, but having that, instead of having it all in my head and doing all this mental stuff, I'm thinking about it, but I get to express it physically. So it's almost like I have a focused place for my energy to go versus when you're in the classroom and you have to sit down and it's just being still and trying to think. I don't actually have a physical release of where my energy is going. 
how does it get in the way now? Either the, the ADHD or the dyslexia. Um, sometimes with the dyslexia, I have to keep reading the same things over and over. <laughs> um, uh, sometimes, and sometimes I get very tired fast reading. Like I get tired fast. Like I'm reading, I'm like, why am I all of a sudden so sleepy? <laughs> right? Because I have to work so hard sometimes to read. And even now, I could tell when I'm tired, it's really hard to focus. When I eat bad, it's hard to focus. And so I can see how when, as especially as an entrepreneur, there's times when you have to put in those long hours, but I can't afford to put in too many long hours because I'm not going to be any good the next day. So sometimes I can see where it bothers me, but then at the same time, I'm like, well, I'll figure it out and I'm going to find out a way that someone didn't think about. So I'll figure it out as it goes. You see the world a little differently. I do. With I do. A, with a, you know, they always talk about neurotypical and neuroatypical. Yeah. And you have sort of a double neuroatypical brain and it's awesome. Because <laughs> you do, you do so many different things. Yeah, I do. Sometimes too many things. And that's one of the things with ADHD. I'm like, oh, squirrel, oh, squirrel, oh, squirrel. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, now which one do I do now? But it, it is part of how I process and work on things. So we make it work. A lot of kids when they're we have ADHD or dyslexia get a lack of confidence as well because maybe they're not doing so well in school yeah but you do have a lot of self-confidence and that knowledge that you just see things differently and you just have to do them differently did you have a period of adjustment like that where it wasn't so easy or how how can somebody gain that confidence in themselves when yeah. they feel like you're not the same as everybody else. To be honest, I really think it starts with the parents. Because when parents get diagnosis with their kids, they freak out and they're like, something's wrong with my child. ADHD is not a death sentence. It is not like putting your child away and they're not going to be successful in life. It's not. But the energy that the parent gives off is the energy the child takes on. So for my mom, I never knew that ADHD was keeping a lot of people from not doing things. I didn't know that was a thing, right? And so my mom, cause she always told me I can do it. Let's figure out how you can do it. And so having that background, I never felt bad or down about my ADHD. But then when I have times where my ADHD is really like strong and I'm having a hard time, I can look back at some of my activity and identify where I kind of, didn't set myself up to be successful, right? So if I push myself really, really hard and I'm really, really tired. So on the days I know I'm having a hard practice, I'm no good working and doing anything else because I know I've used up everything I have already. So I'm gonna keep myself with light tasks these days. If I know I need to use a lot of mental power, I try to save up and rest and eat well. So I'm ready to use that power what I have forever long, I can use it. <laughs> and then after that, I know it's time to shut it down and let's start over the next day. So really learning myself um, has been crucial for that for me and keeping up that um, that confidence because I learned all my little tips and tricks for me. And sometimes parents are just so consumed and and are, and are quick to medicate kids. And some kids, yes, they do need it. But some kids, it's like, if they're learning how to self-regulate, it gives them that chance to really get to know themselves and they can actually kind of redirect themselves 
when they're able to notice it in themselves. What do the people closest to you do that's helpful? I don't know. I'm very independent. I want to do everything myself. So um, they try to help and I'm like, nope, never mind. I got it because you're not going to do it right. So but- well, you still got to work with your dad slash coach. So he's certainly well, known you a long time. He and has. He's had to adjust. Well, he adjusts because if I'm in the mode where I'm trying to figure it out for me, he has to be quiet. Because I don't need your voice and my voice while I'm trying to process what I'm trying to figure out for myself. So if there's something in my technique and he keeps saying the same thing over and over, I'm like, daddy, that's not working. I'm like, you know, give me a moment. Let me figure out. And then I'll uh, just give me the feedback. Is this what you're looking for? And then he was like, okay, not quite. Then I'll be like, okay, let me think. Okay, well, what other thing can I do to get the outcome that he's looking for? And then I'm able to kind of go back in and like think about it. And I'm like, okay, what about this? What about that? Is that closer? Where were we at in this? So he can give me that type of feedback. But when I'm thinking, I just need everybody to leave me alone. <laughs> what my daughter says to me is she looks at me and she says, processing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, that's that's a real thing. And you know, and I feel like sometimes my husband doesn't quite get it just yet because i'm like well, why is he talking to me right now he know i can't focus on all this at the same time like and i can't be like be quiet i'm like babe, can you just give me a minute please <laughs> yeah, try that just go processing <laughs> right <laughs> three olympics and hopefully a fourth that's a yeah. lot in yeah. your discipline what was it like to make your first olympic games Man, to make my first Olympic Games, it didn't really hit me that I made it until I got to China. And I'm like, I'm at the Olympics. Like, this is crazy. And I was just kind of like, just happy to be there. And I was just kind of taking it all in and just like, Michelle, just go out there and do your best. That's all you can do in this situation. Like, I don't know what's going on. I don't know half of these people on this team, but we're a team and I just have to figure it out. And then also with China in 2008, the stadium is still one of the largest stadiums I've ever been in. So for that to be my first Olympic Games, I'm like, after that, anything else is easy. <laughs> <laughs> London, your uh, result keeps getting changed. Yeah. Doping. Yeah. What is it like to be a clean athlete in a sport that has doping as a, as a in the aspect of it more yeah. so than um unfortunately it's just a part of the system you know i can't control what anybody else does it's just like on a test right if you're in class i can't help that the other person cheated i could just go out there and do my best and then hopefully one day they'll get caught right and so that's how I look at it in, in my sport. But then at the same time, like I still want to be better than you while you're cheating and I'm clean. Like you're going to have to cheat more because you're still losing. Right. <laughs> but um, I try not to focus on them because that has nothing to do with me. I hope and I believe that the system works the way it's supposed to work and will eventually keep getting better so they can catch people sooner than later. Um, but if I put my energy on them, then I'm taking away energy from myself. From a practical standpoint, as your result moves up, if sponsors or the USOPC had promised bonuses at certain levels, do you get those retroactively? Nope, you do not. That would be nice. I think um, 
the maybe not from the USOPC level, but I think definitely from the IOC level, there should be payment for that. <laughs> um, but you know, it, it, but it is outside of so many people's control that it, that'll be hard to pinpoint who shall actually be responsible for that. Because ideally, the person who got caught cheating should pay back the money. But who has that money? Right, right. Retract and build athletes. You're already broke anyways, right? That money is spent before you get it. (laughs) How does that feel just emotionally when your result changes like that? Um, I I didn't really have any emotions because uh, let's say in 2012, the person who got caught first, which was the very next day after we competed, we all knew that she was cheating. We were just waiting for everybody else to really prove that she was cheating. And so I'm like, okay, about time. I went from sixth place to fifth place, right? And so I'm thinking like, okay, that's good. And then next thing you know, four years later, I'm fifth going to fourth place. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. (laughs) One more person (laughs) get caught. Your girl get a medal. But I hope it doesn't happen. But it's like, you know, um, how I look at it is that, you know, when you look up any Olympic games, there's a section that always lists all the cheaters. Anytime you Google those young ladies' names, cheater will always be next to their names. And that's something you have to live with for the rest of your life. And I don't have to worry about that. How was London atmosphere-wise compared to Beijing? Like, what, what, what was oh that? Oh, my gosh. The, I mean, every, every Olympic is different. It is, but I had the best time in London. Number one, everybody spoke English, so it was easy to get a, get around. <laughs> I could adventure a little bit more because I felt comfortable going in and out the city. Um, versus in China, I remember we went out to eat. And because the Olympic Stadium was so new, it wasn't in their GPSs. So when the lady um, picked us up, we were able to go out to eat. But then having the cab driver bring us back... He didn't know where to go. He was like, I don't know where this is. And we're like, well, just keep going this way. Turn here, do this. And he was like, well, I don't see it. And plus he's speaking Chinese and we're speaking English. And it was just a mess. So he just dropped us off in the middle of nowhere. We didn't know where we were at. And so we had to call um, like one of the coaches and have them to have somebody come and find us. So I really loved London. I didn't mind going around London. And then so... Still today, even though I won in Rio, London is still my favorite because I had I had a great time. Yeah, and then how how was Rio? Yes, gold medal, but Rio was kind of a. I don't know what happened in Rio. I didn't do anything in Rio because the when you get there, you're focused until you you compete, and then after I competed, I won, and it was a media tour every day after that. So I never get got a chance to enjoy the city, to sightsee. The only sightseeing I was able to do was going from the Olympic Village or whatever the interview was going to be. Like that was the most sightseeing that I had. So I saw like Jesus from a distance. Um, where we practiced, Sugarloaf was right across the water. So I was able to pretty like see that, but that was it. So that was like my only regret about Rio is that I didn't get to see anything in the city. One of the things I forgot to ask when we were talking about competing is you always compete in full makeup with your nails. <laughs> yes. And I'm wondering what what's behind that? Like is it does it make is it just what you're comfortable with? Does it make you feel powerful because a lot of athletes don't go that route. Yeah. 
Um, so I've always been this girly girl since I was a child. Um, my mom said that she thought I just really loved her so much because I would always want to kiss her on the lips when I was little. But then she realized I was kissing her on the lips because she had lipstick on, not when her lipstick. So <laughs> I've always loved makeup. And for me, when I got when I woke up in the morning, got ready for school, I dressed up, put on whatever makeup I was allowed to wear at that time. Like that was always my thing. I get dressed. You get dressed for the day and you're ready to go. And so I was doing the same thing for track and field. I'm like, oh, I gotta track me. I wanna be cute too. So in the beginning, my dad was like, you know, athletes aren't cute. Like athletes, you go out there and get your job done. I'm like, but this athlete wants to be cute. Like, why come I can't be cute? And my like my dad was like, that's what serious athletes do. They just go out there and it doesn't matter what they look like. So I remember my dad like kind of pushed me to not be cute at a meet. And he was like, okay, I will never do that again because he saw the shift in my confidence. Like I did not feel like how I wanted to feel going out there competing. So I don't do that for anybody else. I want to go out and present myself the way I want to present myself. And that was going to make me feel my best. So as long as I know I feel good about myself, I know I look good. I feel confident. I can go out there and do whatever I want to do, but I want to look the way I want to look. So in Rio, there was a lot of discussion about how you presented yourself in competition. And I was even hesitant to ask because it felt very sexist. So yeah. what was your reaction to that discussion? To be honest, I don't even know what's said. I didn't see not one negative thing that was said about me in uh, in Rio. And I don't know how that happened. I'm like, thank you, Laura. I didn't see it because I didn't want to think about it. But But tell me what happened. I don't know what happened. <laughs> no, just a lot of discussion being, you know, why is she doing this? It's it dim almost diminishing you as an athlete to feel like you needed to do that. Oh, well, I don't care, <laughs> number one, because I looked like that the way that I looked and I still won. So why did it matter to anybody how I looked? Now, I used to think that in the beginning that if I'm too cute and I'm always losing, people want to be like, oh, she's too concerned about how she looked. But it was like, well, how come I can't look great and be great? Like, how come I can't have both? And when I'm out there, I'm not so concerned about how I look because I know I sweat. So I don't put on foundation or anything that I have to worry about not touching my face about. I make sure my lashes are on. My uh, I have got eyeliner. My eyebrows are there so you know what I'm thinking. And um, and then I put on the lip. And that's it. Like, that's my that's my thing. So then, therefore, I feel like, okay, I can deal with this. I know where everything's at. I can still sweat and feel confident and go out there. So... I feel like people who have a problem with how I look, you have a problem with how you present yourself. You wish you could still do that and feel the way that you did it if how I look bothers you. Because um, what's funny, too, about my sport is when I first came out, of course, all the other women were looking at me like, who she thinks she is. But then over time, guess what was happening? Michelle, look at my lipstick. Michelle, look at my nails this time. Because if you look at 2008, how some, how some of those women looked, and then you fast forward to 2016, you will see a difference. And that's okay. Women can be women in any shape, form, or fashion, however they want to look. Let them look how they want to look because they're the one doing the job, not you. It's interesting. Like, it, it almost sounds like, because now I want to go back and look. But it does sound <laughs> like, like some people needed permission to to wear what they wanted to wear or look, you know, had their hair done like they wanted to have their hair done. And it, it does add just an element to your confidence 
Yeah. Yeah. But, so you know, it helps. It, <laughs> it, it does. It can be a powerful tool and we don't realize it. Yeah. It's like, who's, I feel like men don't have to do those things. They show up how they show up and it's acceptable. But if I showed up how I practice to a meeting, they're going to be like, what's wrong with you? Why you look like that? But if I show up to a meeting, the show show up the way I look at a meeting to attract me, they're like, what's wrong with you? Why are you looking like that? <laughs> right? Like, that's not fair. And, that, and at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. If this person could do the job and they do and they're good at what they do, let them be them. It has nothing to do with you. But to me, when they open up their mouths, that means that you feel some type of way about yourself, that I, me showing up my best version of myself is making you feel less than, then that's on you, not on me. And if they really upset you, Michelle, we'll just put them in the line of fire. Just right? Them <laughs> <foot>. Seriously. <laughs> That'll shut them up quick. <laughs> but yeah, well, where I was originally going with that was how representation matters. And representation, not just saying race, gender, but sizes, um, appearances. Because there's some people who have like, they got their own little funky style. And if that's how they they dress, I want them to feel comfortable to show up as that person. Because when you could be your authentic self, that's when you can show up and be your best self. So a lot of times people are having to show up in places and spaces and they don't even have the permission to be fully themselves because people can't even handle people being their full selves a lot of times. That's, I feel like, what the issue is. And um, and as a Black woman, I feel that quite often because I'm I'm different a lot of times when I walk into a lot of places and spaces. And in another place of where that happens a lot is how my hair grows. Like, that's different. So people are like, well, I can't do that. Then, you know, like, but I, this, I can't help how I'm, I'm made or how I feel or how I want to present myself. Like, it's in me to be that girly. Let me do me and you do you. Thank you so much, Michelle. You can follow Michelle on Instagram. She is Shot Diva. And on Facebook, she is Shot by Diva. And you could check out her website, shotdiva.com. She will be going for her fourth Olympics at the U.S. Track and Field Olympic Trials on June 18th through 27th, a couple weeks away. So after our interview, I discovered that Michelle and I have something very important in common. What? We are both moms to little white crusty dogs oh she has the cutest and and like myself her dog sits in her office has a little spot so if i had known we would have introduced them oh because we love the little white crusty dogs here yes they are adorable and michelle is fantastic oh my goodness (laughs) we're all going to michelle's house for dinner right oh man yeah, I learned a lot from her, not just on how to watch shot put, but just like the way she carries herself and the the attitude and just, ah, uh, you just, know. That... Just one of those people that you're like, I wish everybody had just a little bit of shot diva in them. Right. And you just, I want to be in the room with her all the time to have oh. some of that wash over me. But, you know, just that her presence and her. Even through the Zoom, we felt it. Right. Just her energy is so wonderful and not overwhelming or chaotic just good people energy mm-hmm. loved her loved her so thank you michelle welcome to shoklistan and we're hoping you get to olympics number four that would oh, be awesome crusty white dogs are cheering for you
Welcome to Shukvastan. Tons of Shuklistani news this week. First off, speed skater Aaron Jackson was named to the U.S. Speed Skating Long Track National Team for the 2021-22 season. Very excited for her. Sid Morantz was featured in a New York Times article on no pin trading in Tokyo. So all of our pin traders will be staying at home. We'll have a link to that article in the show notes. That is really rough. I feel really bad for them i'm on some some pin trading boards and it just there's still pins coming out which is the interesting thing there are pin collectors there but there's not going to be the same level of trading that there was before so very sad chelsea memel is competing this weekend at the u.s national gymnastics championships in fort worth texas she's there already and she was doing podium training today so so she's been posting videos from that. Looks good, man. She's looking good. OrthoFix Medical announced it will continue its sponsorship of diver Laura Wilkinson. And the diving trials are next week, June 6th through the 13th. And also her book titled 10 Meters will be coming out later in June. You know, because training for another Olympics wasn't enough for Laura. <laughs> and, and on top of raising four children. And a podcast. Right. She knows time management. <laughs> or no sleep. Well, that, that too. Okay, on to Olympic team announcement news for Shuklastanis. Sadly, our air rifle athlete, Ginny Thrasher, will not be defending her gold medal. After her final qualification tournament, she wound up in third place, which makes her the non-traveling alternate for the team. So we were so sad to hear about that. And in 3x3 basketball news, Dominique Jones played with Team USA at the Olympic qualifying tournament in Graz, Austria. Unfortunately, they lost in the quarterfinals, which means that they will not be going to Tokyo. Which is a bummer, man. They won their pools, and some of their games were down to the wire. It was so exciting. So, so. the Team USA women's 3x3 team will be going to Tokyo, though. So half the side went. Our beach volleyball players, Kelly Clace and Shuklastani by association, Sarah Sponsel, won uh, the four-star beach volleyball tournament in Sochi last week, and they have officially qualified for Tokyo after Carrie Walsh Jennings and Brooke Sweat lost in a qualifying round for of the final tournament for the beach volleyball rankings that will determine who will go. So this was super exciting. They played so well in Sochi and really like brought it when they needed to. I mean, they had some really tough matches with uh, teams ranked above them and they pulled it out. It was it was fantastic. So they will be the youngest beach volleyball players in Olympic history. So more good news. Equestrian Philip Dutton will be going to his seventh Olympics. A USA Equestrian named him to the eventing team, and he will be riding Z, which I think is a great name for a horse, just, you know, shortened to the point. And his other teammates will be Liz Halliday-Sharp and Boyd Martin. And artistic swimmer Jacqueline Simino has officially been named to the Canadian Olympic team. She will be competing in the duet and team event. So... It's totally official for her now. And best news of all, more babies in Sukhvastan. Branding specialist Vicky Saunders gave birth to a baby girl last week. She hasn't announced her name yet, but I don't care. She's perfect. Right? Oh, so sweet to see those pictures. So congratulations to Vicky and her partner. 
Before we move on to Tokyo 2020 news, you know, a great way to prepare for Tokyo is with a good Olympic or Paralympic book. Get our next book club selection, 7-7 by Ben Ryan. Ben coached the Fiji Rugby Sevens team to the country's first ever gold medal. So you will want to read this book. It is a fun read. Get your copy at bookshop.org slash shop slash flamealivepod. We get a commission from all books purchased through our link, and that goes towards funding our on-the-ground coverage at Beijing 2022. We are constantly adding new titles to our storefront, so check it out. They're coming. I feel like we should have some, like, do 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 The Australians are coming. The Australians are coming. Uh, Yeah, the Australian softball squad arrived. They are the first team to arrive in Japan, and they will be training there until the Olympics start. They'll be in their bubble. It's joyous, but also it's causing some consternation in the press because, of course, having athletes arrive spreads more worries that COVID will be spreading, even though they are testing them once they once they land, they tested negative, and they get to move about, and they'll be kind of controlled in the in their little bubble until it's time to move to the village. But uh, still, I think people are are still worried. And on that note, Olympians have to sign a waiver absolving the Tokyo Organizing Committee of any responsibility if an athlete gets COVID and dies. It specifically says in the waiver, "If you die, it's not our fault." What do you think of that? I always wonder about these waivers. So like when you go to the rock climbing gym and you're going to climb the wall, you have to sign a waiver. Mm -hmm. But how much weight does that waiver actually hold if the rock climbing gym isn't taking care of its equipment? Good point. So if the Olympic committee is negligent, would that waiver hold up in court? And where would you sue? Would you sue in Tokyo or in Japan? Would you sue in your home country? Because if you get COVID and you bring it back, and what does the waiver really say? To me, it says that the Tokyo Organizing Committee doesn't think it can control COVID. That's why you sign have to have people sign a waiver because you not, aren't doing your job. I mean, yeah, I could... I play devil's advocate there so they're just trying to cover their butts in case and and they want to say you know you're it's your choice to be here and you know the risks but it's interesting because like in every sporting event there's a risk do their own international federations make them sign waivers right and and you know remember when we were read abanov's book and there was that millimeter bounce in the floor Mm-hmm. That could have actually caused an injury. Yeah. Or the time when the the horse in the women's gymnastics competition was at the wrong height. I was Somebody just... honestly could have gotten their neck broken. Right. Sport is dangerous. COVID is dangerous. Do your jobs and we'll all be okay. Maybe they're doing their job because the Japanese government has extended its state of emergency until June 20. So will there be fans at all? We don't know. Still don't know that. And I think the organizers have been pushing that decision as far as they can to maybe get and fans. They've also been floating ideas of you have to be vaccinated or you have to prove a negative test to come. That idea has been floated as well. Which, I mean, 
sports without fans is really tough for athletes and it's good that sport i mean there have been several sports that have done the gamut of no fans some fans many fans but uh it, it'll be interesting to see what can actually happen when they when they don't have overseas fans there that does take off a huge element i think of risk it does take off it does take a huge risk away because you don't have all of these people from all over the place mingling uh one other thing that is helping with the covid is that there are a lot of mass vaccination sites being created in tokyo and yoyogi park which was supposed to have a live site for the games so it was going to have a bunch of tv screens and all these people could come and watch the games together instead that's going to be a mass vaccination site so hopefully all of these mass vaccination sites will continue to get more and more people vaccinated just do your jobs and we'll be okay also COVID-related is that the Kyoto News has reported that 10,000 Tokyo volunteers have pulled out, uh, according to the organizers. So that uh, t- talks about the concerns over coronavirus, but uh, Toshiro Muto, who is the CEO of the organizing committee, said it's not seriously going to affect operations because of the way they've had to scale down the original plans. So they were going to need fewer volunteers anyway, and this kind of helps them make a decision, I think. If somebody quits, no one has to be fired. Right. On a happier note, as part of the opening ceremonies, Kyoto News reports that they are considering having two athletes take the athlete's oath, a female athlete and a male athlete. Which is exciting. I think that'd be very nice. Well, it's they're big on gender parity right now. That's a big IOC push. So this would be a very public symbol. And finally, the Tokyo Organizing Committee has announced details of the Paralympic torch relay route. Uh, It's going to be in four prefectures hosting Paralympic events. The relay is going to start on August 17th and run through the 24th. And the maps uh, of the route are available at the Tokyo Organizing Committee website. We will have a link to that in the show notes. So where their flame, you know how the Olympic flame gets lit in Olympia? So does the Paralympic flame get lit at, at Stokes Mandeville? It does. Oh, that makes me so happy. So flames from all of the 47 prefectures in Japan and the flame from Stoke Mandeville are going to come together to create the single Paralympic flame at the flame gathering event in Tokyo. I am such a sucker for all these quasi religious, totally overblown symbols things that the Olympics and the Paralympics of. I love them all. And I don't care if it's ridiculous. Well, it's the, the fact ritual. that the flame comes from the UK where they had the first games. I know it's the ritual is very comforting and it, it gives so much more meaning to it because you're honoring that the, the work done in Stoke Mandeville to bring the games to life. I am so ready. <laughs> Can you wait 50 days? I am so ready. I've got my puffs. I've got my Oreos. I am ready. I know in the past couple of weeks I've been sort of terrified. And now I'm like, no, somebody told me they're having a graduation party. And, and they said, oh, it's the last week. I'm like, sorry, I can't come. <laughs> and they just sort of looked at me and nodded. <laughs> like I didn't have to say anything else. They, they realized the connection. So I was like, yeah. <laughs> 
Can't come, sorry. Well, I think you've got to get ready for gymnastics this weekend. Right? Oh my god. So exciting. So that's going to do it for this week's show. Let us know what you think about Shotput. Email us at flamealivepod at gmail.com. Call or text us at 208-352-6348. That's 208-FLAME-IT. We're Flame Alive Pod on Twitter and Insta. And keep the Flame Alive Podcast group on Facebook. Join us next week when we will have a Paralympic air rifle shooter, McKenna Gear as we go out to music by Archdale. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, keep the flame alive. It's tough, it, but then like I'm on some Tokyo uh, pin trading boards on Facebook group. I'm on some. T- <laughs> just gonna let that go because you saw it. I saw it in your eyes. You knew it. You just said. <laughs>